Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode four, 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 four <laughs> of the Run Run Live podcast. How about that? Four dash four four four. Seems like that should be some sort of celebration. How many self-supported amateur podcasts do you know that make it to four hundred and forty-four episodes? And that doesn't even include all those couple dozen unofficial episodes we did, right? Coming up on 13 years in July. So 12 and a half years we've been doing this. If I have time, I'm going to have to revamp, rebuild the show. Like everyone else, I've got more plans than I have time. But in a perfect world, I need to reformat the show, build out a home studio to finally get some decent audio, and replace my creaky old website, which I'm horribly afraid to touch that website because it's a house of cards (laughs) and I'm not thrilled with the idea of poking at it. In the 12 years since we started podcasting, the technology and the industry has changed and moved forward, so it's probably time for me to catch up, but not today. Today, we speak with Tony, one of our loyal listeners from Los Angeles, the City of Angels. Tony is a committed marathoner and a teacher in L.A., and I wanted to meet and speak with him for a couple of reasons. First, to see what the experience was like to binge listen through a couple hundred Run Run Live episodes, but also to talk about how his discovery of distance running has influenced his teaching and his life. In Section 1, I'll talk about another idea of how to keep your training fresh in the apocalypse. And in section two, I'll talk about some yellow sticky notes you can use to survive another day under house arrest. Ollie and I are doing very well. We had a nice long break over the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. The holiday was Thursday, and most companies take Thursday and Friday, which mine did. But I also took Wednesday as one of my volunteer days that this company wants me to take. So a nice, long, long weekend for me away from the Zoom calls. As you could probably hear in that last episode, I needed it. On my volunteer day on that Wednesday, Ollie and I went out and hiked two of the trails in town. We did some cleanup, picked up some trash. 
that sort of thing. Cut some trees down, and you'll hear maybe a little bit more about that epiphany that I had in Section 2. All in all, I think it was probably five hours of hiking to get all the various little bits of trail covered, and it was awesome. It was great. And I did manage to break the haft off of the tang of my machete. And the reason I'm telling you this is that I like to use old words like haft and tang, which are lovely old words, lovely old English words. And by old English, I mean Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Norse, big hairy guys carrying spears and axes who knew their way around a haft and a tang. And break is another lovely old English word as well. And interestingly, you will find Many of the English words that deal with violence are of Norse origin, which I'm pointing out so I can use the phrase homicidal gingers again. But where would we be without those great Norse words like berserk, ugly, muck, skull, knife, die, and cake? So Thursday, Thanksgiving morning, Ollie and I met our running buddies, a couple of our running buddies, the three guys I always run with, and we ran the course of the Air 5K. And we got there at 8 a.m., and Brian played the anthem, and then we jogged the course. It was like tradition. It was nice. I actually ran every day, and if you include the trail hikes on Volunteer Day, I got five straight days in, which was a delight. And since I was off from work, I could go during the daylight. And daylight is scarce right now in New England. Sun comes up at 7 a.m., sets at 4 p.m., so a scant nine hours of daylight. And I'm feeling okay, a little heavy from all the beer I've been drinking in lockdown. I'm a bit achy from just the season and my age, but I'm getting out. Whatever I choose to train for in the spring is going to be an effort because I'm kind of out of shape. Uh, gonna have to get my volume and speed back up, lose some weight. But the season for me is still busy, but not as bad as it was before the Thanksgiving break. Most of my customers, as it turns out, go into their busy season in December, so I don't hear from them, which is good for me. Still, I know it's hard this time of year for many people especially this year with the challenges of the apocalypse and the other wackiness going on. And I would ask you to get outside of yourself by trying to tune into others. Reach out and ask people how they're doing. Have that call with those people who need it. Just stay in touch. Help someone out. Give someone a compliment. Do something for others. And that will make you feel better because we are social creatures. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Run every trail. Some more things to do in the apocalypse. If you look at it from the right angle, this year has been a year of discovery. Think about it. It has been a year of firsts, a year of changes, a year of challenges, a year of blessings. And those types of years will cause us to grow, you know, if we survive. I started work at a new company in January of 2020, and it is a new role, but also a different type of company. 
I've been engaged with smaller companies, startups for the last 20 years, and I made a decision to engage with a larger company, try something different. And one of the many things that the larger company has is mandatory volunteer days. They want everyone to take at least two days a year and volunteer for something. Now, this was different for me. Usually, if I wanted to volunteer for something, I'd just take a vacation day. Then we get the apocalypse in March. And that changed just about everything, including the volunteer opportunities. Usually, I could volunteer at a race of some sort, but all those were canceled. And as we started getting closer to the end of the year, I realized I needed to figure something out and figure it out fast. So I sent an email to the library because, you know, books. But they said, no way. They could not take volunteers in the apocalypse. They were quite short with me. Who knew librarians could be so snippy? Then I had a brilliant idea. I would volunteer for the trail committee in town and help clean up the trails. And they did not reject me. They said I could do it. And that was how Ollie and I ended up walking five or six miles of trail on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, picking up trash and whacking insolent bushes with this machete. And here again I learned something new. When I told them I was trail walking, they sent me to a couple of trails, one of which I had never been on, a beautiful three-mile loop on an old cross-country ski area. I had to kick myself. I had been running the trails in this town, for 25 years, and here I was on a trail that was new to me. How could such a thing happen? So it turns out there is a trail guide for the town, and I have been reading through the descriptions of all the trails, and there are more than I've... There are more, there, and I've never been on them. So I thought to myself, why don't I start a project of running every trail in town? This sounds simple on the surface, but there are some challenges. My town is a small New England town. It has acquired properties through the years through town purchase or estate donations, and these are little odd bits of land for the most part. Some are swamps. Some are just small fields. Most are relatively small for someone to run, especially someone like me. And I'm typically looking for, you know, six miles. And it's hard to get six miles out of one of these little parcels. I'm having to do multiple parks together and multiple trails together or do multiple loops. And that's part of the fun, figuring this out. For example, the conservation land I run behind my house is actually five or six different parcels that I string together to get those six-mile, seven-mile runs in. Another challenge you'll find is planning your route so you actually cover each trail section. Even in these small parcels, this is a challenge. Most chunks of land in these trail systems, they'll have an outside trail loop. That's good, right? That'll be the longest thing. It'll run around the outside. So it runs around the periphery of whatever the piece of land is. That's the easy part. But then, typically within that outer loop, there's going to be a bunch of crossing paths, and you need to look at it and figure out how to zigzag across these to pick them all up. And this definitely causes some doubling ups. You run the same sections over and over. The other challenge is that the loops have multiple access paths to get to the land and to get out of the land, and they shoot out of the parks like legs on an octopus. And there's no way to run these as a loop, so you end up doing a bunch of out and backs to pick them up. So my rule is you have to tag the trailhead for it to count. 
And what even counts as an official trail? There are paths that lead off to private property. There are game trails. You know, you have to make a call. I go with whatever the official trail map in the trail guide shows or as close as possible. And so far, I've picked up a bunch of trail sections and done some excellent adventuring with Ollie. And when we get back, we send our Garmin plot over to the trail guys with any notes about downed trees or odd conditions. And I'm wondering if there's a way to overlay all these different Garmin plots onto one master map so that I can show my progress. The lesson learned here is that sometimes there's more right under your nose than you realize because you're not that focused on those things, so you don't see them. And in the apocalypse, I bet you can find the roads of your town and the trails of your town, fertile grounds for exploring. And when you can't get on a plane to Maui to run up Haleakala, you can create your own little local adventure. And that's something to keep you busy and a goal to keep you sane. So give it a try and let me know what you learn. And now for today's featured interview. So, Tony, here we are. Give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why we're talking. Okay, well, uh, let me see. I've heard me start, say that before. I'm going to start counting my words right now. So, um, Tony, I've, uh, let me see. I've been a teacher out here in Los Angeles for the last 14 years, born and raised in Los Angeles. And it's been interesting. We've had everything from strikes out here and the high poverty conditions that students live in. It's not a job I would recommend to anybody, but I find that it works well with certain personalities. I've been teaching high school and 13 out of those 14 years. I did middle school once and let's just say I developed a taste for IPAs during that one year. It was yeah. just incredibly rough and I don't understand the psychology of teachers that gravitate towards that. In any case, I taught for about five years when I decided that I would join the school's marathon club. And okay. um, I went from being a, a participant to a semi-coach in about one to two years. And unfortunately, the public school I was working at at the time, we weren't accepted by the big a student running group out here, Students Run LA. There were just too many schools and too many students that were already participating. It's about 3,000 or so uh, people that they admit, almost 99% of whom are students at at-risk schools and whatnot. So at some point, I was displaced from the school because of um, economic reasons and whatnot. And when I started working at a different school, SRLA was already there. They had a presence and they needed someone to fill in some shoes. So I decided, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to fit the bill. And yeah, in the span of going back to the first experience of like the first race I ever ran was in 2012. First full marathon I ever ran was 2012. And up to that point, I think maybe 30 to 45 minutes was the longest I've ever ran. And I thought, well, a bunch of high schoolers can do this. No yeah. big deal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember the first time we clobbered 17 miles and we had to take a bus back from our route to the school. And when the bus was stopped at a red light, everything was hurting. I had never experienced that amount of pain just uh, everywhere, uh, everywhere, just everywhere. So uh, I decided this, uh, we'll see what happens. This was 17 miles and you know we're training for something a little bigger than that. But um, I'm very competitive. And over the years and, and throughout my running experiences, I have close to about 60 full marathons under my belt now. 
And I thought, well, the best way to get good at a thing is to keep doing that thing. And um, the other coach was really conservative. Like I understand there's a lot of personal circumstance. I think I've gone beyond my two word, 200 words, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> I'll cut you off if I need to. Okay. So, But you got the bug, in other words. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it, it's funny, Tony, because I know a lot of runners mm-hmm. and there's a lot of teachers. Mm-hmm. There's something about teachers and engineers that gravitate towards running. Engineers too, huh? Yeah. I think they like the math part of it, right? Uh-huh. The, the sort of the hard discipline of it. Yeah. But teachers, I don't know. Must be because, I don't know, you guys have too much free time on your hands? Is that it? <laughs> it might be just aside from the typical, what is it? The only way out is through type of mentality because you come across not just difficult students, but difficult adults in the profession. And sometimes I've had really wonderful experiences and I've had quite the opposite with students. And whenever the topics come up with other teachers, well, I'm thinking about doing and ad- getting an administrative credential, aren't you? And I think the silliness of working with students, like I can deal with that, but the silliness that I see adults bring to the workplace, I don't, I don't know if I could deal with that. I'd much rather stick towards the kids. You see them grow throughout the years uh, and mature and whatnot, but being able to become a coach, because as I was becoming a, an endurance runner, I, I was also becoming a coach at the same time. And um, again, it's for me, psychologically, I think it just went back to like, if I want to be a good coach, I got to be able to know this distance backwards and forwards. So um, that first 2012 was one marathon. The next year it was seven. The next year after that, I did a little bit more than that. And that 2014, that same year, I was able to qualify for Boston. And I went through all that and I thought, all right, this helps. And a lot of the same students, they go through the same mistakes over and over again. And you're there, you coach them through. And it informed my teaching the same way teaching sort of informed my yeah. running and my coaching. So it was Yeah, a, I would think know, that would be very complimentary, right? Because you're able to see as a teacher, you're able to see that each one of these kids is an individual, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and has different ways of learning. That's true if you're trying to run a marathon or, or learn calculus, right? Sure. Yeah. And I think the biggest uh, and maybe the most pleasing difference between working with the kids in the classroom that have to be there and coaching students that want to participate is that they're not shy about communicating the growth and you see the smiles. I can't take full credit for it. That's the fruit of their own efforts. But I can say I was there and and I helped them out a little bit. And that feels great. So basically to reel it back a little bit, what you coach is you take high schoolers and train them for the LA marathon. That's right. Right. And you must see some the typical runner's arc there, right? They don't think they can do it. Mm-hmm. And then they do it mm-hmm. and it becomes transformative in their lives. Right. Yeah. Do you see that? For the occasional student, they get the bug. And even after they've graduated, there were maybe about two or three students, one or two in particular, that asked me, hey, we're trying to do this series, but we need a ride. And there's there's a series down here that's uh, Ocean, what is it? Not, uh, Orange County, it's Surf City, and it's another... Uh, Uh, Long Beach. So they signed themselves up and they asked me to drive them out. They know I'm participating in that series anyway. So I think, wow, this is way above and beyond Students Run LA at this point. This is not the nonprofit uh, sector (laughs) where they're paying for it out of their own pocket. And at the same time, you have students that they're one and done, but it's an experience that they cherish and they take with them forever. Right, right. 
there is one thing that stands out to me and it might be insignificant by other runners standards, but <laughs> there was this one student, let's call her Stephanie. We'd be training uh, after school, maybe three or four days a week on the track. Cause we weren't going out to the streets at that point. And it might've been uh, three or four weeks in and um, like we would do occasional speed work or slow down and going around in loops is uh, as boring as it is. You know, some of the students, uh, like they adapted to it to a certain point, but there was one time where we were maybe 45 minutes worth of circles around the track. And after the time was up, I was always running fast at that point because I didn't appreciate the value of running slow. And like, I just keep going and lapping the students and the students would lap me and stuff. So this student, after our time was up, just completely sweating out of breath was just like stumbling, Mr. Martin, Mr. Martin, guess what? Guess what I did, Mr. Martin? I'm like, Stephanie, are you all right? She's like, yeah, I'm great. But guess what? I'm like, what, what's up, Stephanie? She said, out of the time we were training, I just did my first lap without stopping. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's great. We've been training for three or four weeks. And uh, I mean, for her, it was an enormous, it was just a step that she couldn't contain herself. And, and yeah, I've done my share of laps. I've done my 100 laps without stopping. And it's tedious. But I guess I didn't think that for 15, 16 year old, that is a huge deal. So when the marathon time came around, she was slow, but she wasn't our final finisher in, in the group. So I thought, wow, it's one of those things she, she took with her. And um yeah, that'll, that'll affect our lives, right? There's so many teachable moments in that journey. That's great that you were able to participate in that. And just, uh, I think it's 104 laps as a marathon, right? Right, right. See, only people like you and I would know that off the top of our heads. <laughs> well, 104 plus the point two, I think. <laughs> yeah, you got to throw in a little bit more. If you run it in the second lane, I think it rounds out. There you TV. go. I don't know. have to do some math there. <laughs> but uh, that's pretty cool to go ahead and uh, help kids like that. You must get a big uh, kick out of that. The other thing that we were talking about is podcasts, right? Mm -hmm. So being a distance runner, you are doing what? 20 mile runs for three hours. You listen to a lot of audio. Oh yeah. So do you start out listening to music? I think maybe the first two seasons of the LA marathon, first two years, I was one of those people that frowned upon others that had their headphones. Ah, yeah, in. no headphones. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, at some point, I've been a late bloomer for lots of things. But uh, I think when I realized, like, wait a second, this whole music thing, it's kind of nice. You know, let me, yeah. let me incorporate more and more of this. And I think at some point, I don't know if, if you want to call it uh, having matured or evolved to the point where, whoa, okay, well, I can learn stuff and listen to people with, edu- you know, experts on subjects or whether it's news or, or a comedic um, whatnot. Why not? It's it's three hours. Actually, that's one of the strategies you can take to get yourself motivated is to have something where you're, you're listening to something with a narrative, right? And you're actually eager to find out what happens, right? And yeah. then you sort of conflate the run with the finding out what happens and it makes it easier to get out there, right? Sure. But, yeah. uh, And it can be very meditative as well. But I will occasionally, it's not all the time, but occasionally I will on purpose ditch the headphones for a long run just Mm -hmm. to spend that time with Mm -hmm. myself on purpose, Mm -hmm. right? So that works too, because you come up with stuff when you're running, Mm -hmm. just your brain, your subconscious bleeds through when you get into that flow state out on a long run, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we were talking... uh, before you'd reached out to me and said, Hey, I listened to your podcast from beginning to end, but you didn't. 
That's right. You didn't. You only started at episode like 200 and something because that's as that's far right. back as uh, iTunes goes. Yep. Yeah. So I looked at that. And that's really not that long ago. That's uh, 200 something. I forget which one it was, but uh, it's funny because I'll go back and look at some of those shows and I'll, go, I'll have no idea who those people were. <laughs> like I totally have forgotten talking, right? There's certain uh, people that stand out, but sometimes it's just like it's the flow. But the reason I started doing it long, long time ago was to force myself to practice that storytelling and that that narration and that communication. And also to dabble in the quote unquote social media aspects of it, which were really big at the time when I started back in 2005, whatever it was, no, 2007. That was when social media was new and there was a lot going on. And I wanted to be connected to that and be hands-on. So give me a few hundred words on how you got hooked into my podcast and what that arc was to binge listen through 200 episodes. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're um, still breathing. So (laughs) I can say that one of the ones that clearly stand out to me uh, before coming across your podcast was one called Human Race. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was discontinued at some point, but every 30 minute or so minute episode, it was just, it was completely different story, different narrators. And uh, I think it was the famous running magazine that had a different person in charge and I guess made that one of the priorities of its workers. It was just great. And this was at the same time that I was developing more and more and and running was taking up more and more of my time. But uh, that was pre-CYKT Russell. And I thought, well, you know, it only goes back so far. They discontinued it. I got to find something else. And I, I did come across some other podcasts, which were hit and miss. I could dig a couple of the topics, but... I came across your podcast and um, I think for the hosts that have been most successful, or at least the ones that I've liked the most, it's, there's a certain cross section of the tone of your voice, its appeal, who it's for, the, the topics. I don't know if there's any subject at all, including like, for example, I teach Spanish. I get bored of what I do after a while, just from one day to the next or just from one period to the next, I th- okay, we're doing our verbs again, we're doing our grammar again, but you found some way to make the topic of running, and it never gets old with you. So I thought, all right, this is my guy. <laughs> and uh, the occasional narrative um, parts that you go into, just, just sharing your writing and whatnot, the different aspects of whether it's running, how to run with a dog, the nutrition, the guests, it's a great mix. I mean, I did all that stuff on purpose. I tried to give it structure because I believe it goes back to my business career, right? When I'm doing presentations, people want a beginning, a middle and an end, mm-hmm. and they want to know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? They want to, mm-hmm. when they, when they show up, they want to know what your intent is and what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what I always counsel people. If they're in, uh, in these business meetings, first thing you do is set your intent, mm-hmm. right? And by having a structure that sort of gives you the intent, right? It gives you the framework where it's comfortable, people know what's coming, mm-hmm. and you've got the cues to walk them through it, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I did that on purpose. And the other thing that I tried to do was to have the publishing be very spot on. And I've slipped on that recently because my Fridays are nuts. I can't do Fridays anymore. I got to mm-hmm. do it on Saturdays and Sundays. But I, I've been measuring myself recently, and it takes probably all told five to eight hours to put a show together for me, mm-hmm. which isn't a lot, but it's a lot of work. So I got to find that. Yeah. It makes me think a lot about just with my teaching my entire weekend in the morning, I'll do my three and a half hours 
through this uh, apocalyptic moment that we're in. I mean, I don't run so much when it's normal teaching season and, and just everything is a little bit different. But now that the, the demands are still there, but there's an aspect of flexibility that I have with my schedule. But what I've realized is that even teaching, like on certain days, it's even days and then you have odd days, even days and odd days. I can't plan my performance in a normal chronological sequential way. You have to backwards plan. If you don't backwards plan, then you're not going to have the best show. And if you don't have the best shows, you're not going to have buy-in from the students. And as it is, it's hard to get buy-in from students that are doing this, not because they want to, because they have to. But yeah, it's nice to hear you have roughly the same approach. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. So the other question I would have is, you're binge listening through, I don't know, let's say 50 episodes, right? Sure. If I'm doing those every two weeks, that's two years of my life, <laughs> right? That's two years of my life mm-hmm. that you're doing in two weekends, let's mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. right? So how does that come across, <laughs> right? It's like time travel. Ah, oh, man. I, I don't want to say the wrong thing because... I. No, it's okay because I'm curious. That's why I'm talking to you because I'm curious. Well, right? it's I, interesting I think just me. for me... I guess I don't think about it too much and I completely take it for granted. (laughs) And I I feel bad about saying that because there's this parallel debate that I've heard other people have about, well, what I hate about binging TV shows is that you don't have the same amount of appreciation for all of the work that went into it. Like, again, I'm I'm a late bloomer. And when I watched Breaking Bad, it took me all of three or four weeks. And (laughs) I mean, how many years worth of work went into that? And no, uh, it's not really that I'm not saying you're underappreciating the work. What I'm saying is it's a compressed time frame, right? Mm-hmm. So as I'm experiencing it, mm-hmm. you're experiencing it differently. Yeah. Right? What that difference, does it flow if you put four it, of them back to back? It absolutely does. And is, is there a narrative track where it's like, I think there's a narrative around the events I do. Yeah. The, the you'll of- catch on that I'm training for something. I'll train mm-hmm. for six months, mm-hmm. which would be 12 episodes. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, yeah. I've enjoyed it so much because I may listen to maybe one or two of any podcast in general, if there's a bunch that I have stacked up only because I don't want to over binge, like I'll, right. I'll right. moderate my, right. you get sick of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, well, not so much that uh, I'll get sick of it, but I want, I want to be able to appreciate it over a longer period of time. Yeah. And um, I think at the same time, it's, yeah, I just, I need to digest what it is that's being presented. Yeah, but is there any dramatic tension where you're going, I wonder how Chris did in the 2017 Boston Marathon? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's been one of the funnest parts of following you on the podcast. I went out too fast and crashed like I always do. (laughs) I mean, I I can tell you that story without knowing what happened. (laughs) Yeah, now that I think about it, because you definitely build the anticipation in the audience. You know, you've got this race coming up, but when you conquered that 100 miler, it was nice to hear how just how many incredible amount of hours that you put in on the trails just for getting ready for that. And then the next day, I get to find out how you did. I'm like, all right, (laughs) that was great. (laughs) Yeah, I survived. Yeah, I survived. First 50, 60 miles were awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, that, oh, I was interested in that. And you'll have to find a way to go back and listen to the really horrible first hundred. I really hit my stride around in the 70s or 80s, right? That's where I kind of figured it out. Plus, the technology wasn't real great back then. Mm-hmm. So, there's a lot of, uh, sounds like listen to old time radio. I will let you know when I'm able to easily access that and make my playlist. 
It's like a Franklin Delano Roosevelt fireside chat with the crackling in the background. <laughs> That's funny. So, all right. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. Anything you want to uh, share with us, Tony? The programs you're working with or anything? Um, well, currently not really, but I, I would say that uh, it might have been the last podcast you put out. I've definitely been feeling, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people, runners just in general, that have this kind of gloomy feeling that, um, yep. Yeah, just a funk. I mean, it's taken since 2012, on again, off again. I'm running, training for this thing, training for that thing. Kind of like rungs on the ladder. If there are other athletes out there, weekend warrior types like you or myself, if, yeah, boy, you just, you got to just run with the end in mind. And if there's no goal there, just, I don't know, put put little marks up for yourself. I mean, I, I needed this as boring as the virtual events were getting to be because I, I did like a 500 mile and then a 1000 miler. Mike Wardian put out this run. Yeah, Wardian. Yeah. 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 I put out this run across the entire country. I think it's called Cannonball, something like that, the Cannonball Run. Yeah. So uh, it's been fuel and uh, I get to see my little pixelated progress on yeah. the screen, but uh, I'm, I'm happy. To, like I never thought I'd be first place in anything of that magnitude, but it's been nice. It's been keeping me. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, that's why I hate going with these ultra guys because they all finish it in like 12 days and <laughs> I'm at mile 200, right? So, yeah. Yeah. There's options out there, that same race and other ones where you know you do it as a team. I did one with some other teachers as a team. And as long as you get out there, just anything to to get out of the funk. I know that's easy to say, and it's not so easy to wake up at 5 a.m. And up until uh, September, when I decided I'm going to make this my little obsession for the next few months, just being on survival mode. But I'm thinking also that it develops me mentally. And um, yeah, you, you just got to stay motivated. Yeah, you got to find a way, right? Mm-hmm. Find a way. Sure. Because as the wise men said, this too shall pass. Yes, exactly. All right. We'll talk to you. All righty. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Yellow sticky notes for the apocalypse. What are on yours? Here is your million dollar idea for the day. Create a set of yellow sticky pads with inspirational words and phrases pre-printed on them. Which is not a new idea, of course. You can go buy any size or shape sticky notes in any color. And they all will also have many different sayings on them. So that idea has already been found. But mine, mine, the ones I'd create, they'd be better. Mine are better. I started dabbling in sticky note graphic design and publishing as the house arrest of the apocalypse started to push me close to the sucky vortex of, well, not depression, but certainly some anxiety and definitely a bit of attitudinal funk. One of mine, and I spoke about this last time, one of mine says joy. And I created this one, one particularly bleak morning. I was staring down a full day of video calls with clients, and I was tired, and I didn't want to do it, and I wanted to crawl back into bed, which would be easy because bed in the apocalypse is only a few feet down the hall. And then I thought about the people on the other end of the video, and I figured they were feeling the same thing. If I was in a funk and not wanting to show up, then they probably were too, which meant that they needed my help, and that gave me purpose. I thought the best way I could help them 
was to bring joy into the interaction. So I wrote joy on a sticky pad, and I posted it on my monitor where I would see it, and I tried to bring positive energy to those calls no matter what. And I tried to bring empathy for how the others were doing. I tried to bring joy. Another sticky note I have says, do the work. (laughs) It is a simple declarative statement for when I find myself circling the sucking vortex of being overwhelmed by too many deliverables. Big chunks of ill-defined work that have to be done, and I don't know where to start. I have a tendency to procrastinate like an Olympic-level procrastinator when I have these big impending deliverables. When it gets too big, I seize up and do nothing. As Stephen Pressfield describes in The War of Art, I let resistance take over. All of a sudden, I'm washing dishes in the sink instead of preparing for that important call. I have to remind myself that the only way out is through, and the only way to finish the work is to do the work. And the only way to do the work is to sit down and do the work. On a kinder note, another one of my sticky pads says smile and breathe. This is for those times when I find myself taking it all too personally, where something has gone wrong and I'm anxious that I need to be doing something to fix it, I take that personally, which on the one hand makes me accountable in the roles I'm in, which is a good thing, but on the other hand, too much self-directed stress around things that are mostly out of my control makes it hard for me to be effective in the very things I'm trying to fix. When this happens, you need to clear the performance stress, the anxiety out of your system so you can get things done. And when this happens, I tell myself to smile because it's hard to be anxious when you're smiling, especially when dealing with others. And I tell myself to breathe because a couple deep meditative breaths clear the anxiety physically from your body. And finally, I have a sticky note that says intent, abundance, detachment. And these are three things I brought with me from my sales roles. Intent means that before any action or interaction, be sure of what your intent is. Because people can sense your intent. If your intent is to sell them something and close them on a deal, they will sense that and there will be resistance. If your intent is to bring value, to coach, to help them get to a better place, they will sense that as well. I coach people to openly declare their intent in the beginning of these meetings and calls. Why circle the topic and make the others try to guess? Tell them what your intent is up front, and you own that agenda. That is positive and powerful, and people will appreciate it. So take a moment to look inside and know your intent. Feel your intent. Live your intent. The second one, abundance, comes in no small part from Carol Dweck's wonderful book on mindsets. When dealing with others, you always want to have an attitude of abundance. There are plenty of fish in the sea. There is always more business. There are an infinite number of deals and projects that you can be adding value on. We can get this done. We can do big things. Nothing can stop us. 
That's your attitude of abundance, and it's infectious. The opposite of abundance is scarcity. An attitude of scarcity thinks that there is only so much to go around. There is limited time. There is limited money. There is limited attention. Scarcity makes you think small and act defensively. Scarcity is fighting over the crumbs. Abundance is baking infinitely more cookies. And the third one, detachment, is another way of not taking it personally. Yes, you are going to do your best. Yes, it is important, but you can't take it personally. It's a fine line to walk. But you must stay detached from the outcomes. Focus on the process. Do the best you can in the process, and that will inevitably produce the outcomes that you want. Focusing on the process is an act of production, and abundance. Focusing and becoming emotionally attached in the outcomes is a process of scarcity. And those, my friends, are my sticky notes so far this year in the apocalypse. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, okay, my friends, we have binge listened through to the end of episode 4-444 of the Run Run Live podcast. That's it. No more left. Time to move on. Ollie and I have been, like I said, exploring the trails around town on the weekends. We went out Saturday to a new trail. This one was called Mill Hill, and I had a plan. Saturdays I do a lot of errand running, so I have to write up a little plan in the morning of how I was going to get everything done. So I got up, and I wrapped Christmas presents that I've been accumulating online, and, and I packaged them up for shipment, went off to the post office, just before they closed at noon and shipped them out. And then I did some yard cleanup, and all this time, the weather was closing in, closing in. It was raining and snowing and winding because the weather was forecasted to be challenging. We had a nor'easter roll through with rain and wind and snow, and I figured I could hit this park with Ollie on the way back from the town dump, where, which is one of my errands on Saturdays. And I don't mind running in a storm, especially a snowstorm, and in, especially in the woods. As long as you're dressed, it's actually kind of fun. So we stopped at this new little trail section on the way back, and I figured we'd have it to ourselves because I'm usually the only one out in the woods running in a howling snowstorm. And the park looked reasonably big on the website map, so I figured we'd run a few laps, check that off for the day, and it turns out it was much smaller than it looked. The whole loop took me like six minutes. And the hill part of the description was quite accurate because it was basically a little hill and the trails climb and descend that steep little hill. And there's a couple of picnic tables on the top. So here I was looking for a relaxed ramble in the park and I ended up basically doing hill repeats and four inches of slush. And Ollie didn't know what I was doing. He didn't get it at all. He kept ambushing me and picking up big sticks to run between my legs with. Uh, we ended up doing, I think, 16 plus hill loops of this little 90 foot hill, <laughs> 90 feet of elevation or so in the storm. So it was a good workout. I think I got my money's worth. The other big news is that I am making progress on my new podcast, my new apocalypse podcast. So I'm targeting to have it live in January. It's called After the Apocalypse, 
After the Apocalypse is a serial podcast that tells the story of the survivors of a 21st century plague that has catastrophically wiped out 90% of human population. Will they be able to survive? What happens to our modern world when the Great Plague comes? Can humankind survive and learn, or will it devolve into a Dark Age nightmare of our worst traits? Listen to the story of After the Apocalypse to find out. Ollie and I went out this morning for another run in the woods. <laughs> we didn't get that much snow, or not much snow left. It, we got a lot of snow, but it was mixed with rain, and uh, not, not a lot of it stuck. Brought down a lot of trees, because uh, it was heavy, heavy wet snow. So once we got in the woods under the trees, it was maybe a couple of inches, but it got colder overnight, so the slushy snow turned to crunchy and crusty snow, which actually isn't bad for running. You know, as long as it's got a little give to it and it's not sheer ice, it's pretty good running snow. Had to go with an alternate, an old pair of trail shoes because the ones I wore yesterday were still soaked. Um, Ollie hated it, though. I think it hurt his feet. We did two hours or so and then moved Snow and ice around the house for another hour and a half. Uh, explored a new trail system called Newtown Hill. And it was nice and nobody out there. And lots of trees and branches down from the heavy wet snow. And you know what? I'm tired. Such is life. Crusty snow, climbing hills. Talking about the apocalypse. What more can you ask for? I'll see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.